2: Episode 386 of the Bowery Boys on the trail of the Old Croton Aqueduct. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey.
0: Hi there, welcome to
2: the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, and Greg, I've emerged from my Gilded Age cocoon I've been living in for the past few months, and I have come back down to the Bowery. You're back just in time, because we're about to tackle
0: a whole host of interesting stories, and to mark the occasion of your return, we're actually celebrating with a new road trip miniseries.
2: Last spring, we devoted three episodes to the history of Long Island by visiting three historic sites- Long Island's Gold Coast, Jones Beach, and Cherry Grove on Fire Island. Well, this year, we're heading north to the Hudson Valley.
0: Now, for the next three episodes, we'll be exploring places located between New York City and Albany in the towns and villages along the historic Hudson River. Now, for those who are not familiar with the region or haven't been there yet, please consider this your invitation, because the Hudson River Valley is not only one of the most beautiful destinations in the whole United States, but it's truly rich in history. Native American history, Dutch and colonial history, Mm -hmm. Revolutionary War history, and as you'll hear today, early New York City history.
2: Yes, and our first destination today isn't actually one single place, but several spots along a trail that stretches Along the western end of Westchester County, a trail known as the Old Croton Aqueduct Trail, which actually sits atop one of the most important engineering feats of the 19th century, the old Croton Aqueduct.
0: Ah, now we've mentioned the Croton Aqueduct, of course, on many of our past shows, so hopefully it's familiar to most of you. And 10 years ago, in 2012, we devoted an entire episode to it. That's episode 143, and a complimentary show, we hope, to this one. When the Aqueduct was completed in 1842... It changed American urban life forever by bringing fresh, clean water to the growing city of New York.
2: The fresh water that flows through the aqueduct comes from the Croton River. It's a tributary river that flowed into the Hudson. In the 1830s and early 1840s, it was dammed and connected to an aqueduct, a water conduit or tunnel, which brought its water more than 40 miles down into New York City, which is really a concept that was taken from the ancient Romans. So in
0: this week's show, then, we are going to be taking you to the aqueduct. That's right. We will not be speaking abstractly and at great distance. Mm-mm. No, we will be bringing you the story from multiple locations along and sometimes on top of the aqueduct system itself. We'll be surrounded by water as if we're in a water park.
2: <laughs> as if? I mean, the old Crown Aqueduct Trail is is a park in fact it's maintained yes. <laughs> by the New York State Office of Parks Recreation and Historic Preservation it's a linear park similar you know to a rail trail through gorgeous Hudson Valley villages and actually often in sight of the Hudson River itself you know actually in fact let me trace this for us let me situate
0: the trail mm-hmm. okay so everyone make a map in your head all right the trail begins at Croton Gorge Park, where the water gushes down into the Croton River. So you follow that river to where it empties into the Hudson at the hamlet of Crotonville. Then, heading south, the trail passes through Ossining, which at the time of our story today was known as Sing Sing, Mm -hmm. then to Sleepy Hollow, Tarrytown, and Irvington, which are villages made famous by the writer Washington Irving, and then into Dobbs Ferry, Hastings on
2: Hudson, and finally into Yonkers. A true scenic route along the (laughs) Hudson River. And and by the way, Metro North's Hudson Line stops at most of these towns if you want to get on and get off and, and visit various sections on the trail. So Croton Gorge in the north, all the way down to Yonkers, Uh, But of course, the aqueduct didn't stop in Yonkers. Uh, That's only where today's state-operated trail ends.
0: Yes. So the Westchester Trail is 26.5 miles, but the actual length of the aqueduct was 41 miles. And so the rest of it is through New York City, from the Bronx and through Van Cortlandt Park, then along a leafy aqueduct walk, which takes you then to the High Bridge, which brought the aqueduct over the Harlem River from the Bronx to Manhattan.
2: And then from there, the water was carried down through New York, which, I mean, most of the city in 1842 was really, really far down the island. Up here, it was very rural. So the water traveled down the length of Manhattan
0: into two reservoirs for storage and distribution. You had the York Hill Receiving Reservoir, located where Central Park's Great Lawn is today, and the Murray Hill Reservoir at 42nd Street, which was later replaced with the New York Public Library
2: main branch building. What a trip. Mm-hmm. And today's trail that we'll be walking along is really mainly today for, for walking and running, Right.
0: Yes, although there are actually some sections that are even good for horseback riding, should oh. you have a horse available to you. As you could hear, it's not overly remote either because it goes through all of these villages. So it's not just natural beauty, but there are all kinds of other historic
2: sites along the way. It's basically a Washington Irving walking tour. I mean, <laughs> kind of is, yeah. We should think about that for Bowery Boys Walks. <laughs> but this whole trail. Our whole story really today hinges on the Croton River itself. Mm -hmm. So what is Croton exactly? So this
0: whole region that we're talking about has such a deep history that goes back to the native tribes, of course. There's even archaeological evidence that traces native populations at Croton Point going back at least 7,000 years. Wow. It's actually from a Kitchewanq tribe where we get the name of the region from its sachem leader Kenoten,
2: which became Croton. And so then, when the Dutch arrived in the 17th century, they created settlements up here along the Hudson. Mm-hmm. The Van Cortlands were a very important Dutch family
0: for this region. You can actually find the old Van Cortland Manor in Croton on Hudson. This region was also very critical during the Revolutionary War after the British occupied New York in 1776. The trail actually passes through many sites of interest relating to the Revolutionary War.
2: Mm -hmm. So then what was it like here by the early 19th century?
0: It was much quieter. It was rural, dominated by farming and fishing, as well as flour and brick manufacturers. This river, the Croton, was actually lined with old mills. You could also find early American winemakers, and you can even visit the ruins of 19th
2: century wine cellars at Croton Point. Wine cellar ruins? Talk about vintage wines. <laughs> so so generally speaking, then, this was really a, a world away from the, the hustle and bustle of the city.
0: Because, you know, New York was becoming quite a booming place by the 1830s.
2: Yes. In fact, the city had become the nation's most important port, a uh, doom in part to the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, And the population in the city had quickly then increased from about 200,000 in 1830 to about 312,000 by 1840. Most immigrants to the U.S. were disembarking in New York City, and many would stay. And in terms of our story today, these people were arriving into a city
0: without a reliable source of fresh water. So how exactly then did New Yorkers get fresh water before Croton? Like, where did it
2: come from? Well, and I do mean well, by the 1830s, New Yorkers were getting most of their water from either cisterns or wells because the rivers were not an option. That's the great irony, right? The Mm -hmm. Hudson
0: and the East River were surrounded by water, but, of course, it's just too brackish, Mm -hmm. salty, and Polluted, just completely undrinkable.
2: Right. And most houses had cisterns in the backyard that collected rainwater. Rain would drain into the cistern. You couldn't drink this water, but it would be Mm -mm. used for washing clothes and for cleaning the house. But by the 1830s, even it was too dirty because the water, you know, drained through ash and filth into the cistern. Mm, Sounds delicious. (laughs) And what about the wells? Oh, they were even better because wells tapped into underground water sources, which were clean if you lived, you know, far up the island on a farm. But lower Manhattan was an extremely congested place already in the 1830s with industry, you know, and residents and factories and so on. And they were all draining their filth out into the street or their backyards and ultimately into the water supply. I mean, you just really know how to sell this. (laughs) This was no Poland
0: Spring. No one was bottling this water for sale. This wasn't Aquafina.
2: This wasn't even Dasani. This was disgusting.
0: We've spoken a few times on the show, many times actually, about Collect Pond, Mm -hmm. which had been New York's largest freshwater source and located around today's Foley Square, the Civic Center of New York. But by the time of our story in the 1830s, it had already disappeared.
2: Yeah, it had become so polluted, thanks to all this, you know, industrial and residential waste, that the city drained it by constructing a canal, which lives on as today's Canal Street.
0: But you make it sound like all of this water was just completely toxic and polluted. But where were New Yorkers drinking? They were obviously not dehydrated.
2: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, many of them just drank bad water, or they drank beer, you know, or Mm -hmm. other alcoholic concoctions. But no, there was water to drink. By 1809, there were nearly 250 public wells in New York, including one that was called the tea water pump, which had the best reputation. And jugs of that would be sold door to door for a penny each.
0: And that might have been good for drinking, of course, but water has more purposes, right? I mean, firefighters need water to put out fires, uh-huh. which were very common during this period when the entire city consisted of wooden homes.
2: <laughs> right, right. Wooden homes with fireplaces for heating, very flammable. And fires were extremely common and sometimes incredibly destructive like the Great Fire of 1835, which destroyed more than 650 structures in lower Manhattan. But you also needed water to keep
0: the city clean and keep it free of disease.
2: Yes, and New York, with its already you know densely packed neighborhoods and dirty streets, suffered many outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera and other epidemics. But there was an especially devastating cholera epidemic in 1832— Uh, which killed nearly 3,000 New Yorkers. So by the early 1830s, New York really
0: desperately needed a water system, but they had tried before, right?
2: Oh yeah, they had tried in the late 1790s to tap into the Bronx River, which it's a long story, but it ultimately resulted in the founding of Aaron Burr's Manhattan Company. And although some rich New Yorkers were supplied some water by this company, it was really more a a scheme to establish a bank, which would eventually become today's Chase Bank. But after that cholera epidemic in 1832, city leaders said, enough. And up in Albany, they formed a water commission, which reported in 1835 that the way to move forward wasn't by tapping into the Bronx River, but rather a much larger freshwater source farther upstate, the Croton River. And because they'd been burned by this whole Manhattan Company scheme, this time they required that the water system be owned and operated by the city. It would be a public utility, not private. So this plan then went to the New York City voters who passed it by a huge margin, a three-to-one margin. And we'll be exploring that actual plan
0: here in a moment from the ground, Mm -hmm. but sort of generally speaking, what was the plan?
2: Well, the plan would be, uh, well, it'd be led in 1835 by a chief engineer named Major David Bates Douglas, who was a war hero from the War of 1812. And this plan was to construct a dam on the Croton River, which would create an enormous reservoir of 500 million gallons of water. And then from there, A conduit system, which for most of the length was a a horseshoe-shaped tunnel, would lead the water down to the Harlem River along the route that you just mentioned earlier.
0: And from there, it would cross the Harlem River over the High
2: Bridge into Manhattan. Yes, the High Bridge, a magnificent Roman aqueduct-inspired structure that would be completed in 1848. And then, yes, from there to the Holding Reservoir, then the Distributing Reservoir on 42nd Street, and then out to the city. And all this was directed by Major David Bates Douglas? Initially, although he really wasn't moving quickly enough for the water commissioners. He he kept heading back out, doing additional surveys, asking for more staffers, making excuses. Delays, delays, delays. Mm-hmm. And finally, the commissioners just fired him, and replaced him with his second chief engineer, a man named John B. Jervis. Now, Jervis might be a name familiar
0: to early American engineering history junkies because he built his reputation during the construction of the Erie Canal and then on early railroad projects. And now, 1836, he was in charge
2: of the Croton Aqueduct Project. Jervis was now in charge. And, you know, some stories are better told at the source. So why don't we hop in the car and head up to Croton Gorge Park to tell the rest of the story? Tom, I've got the cooler packed. I've got a, quote, trail mix
0: for our listening adventures. (laughs) And I am ready to go. Let's go. The Bowery Boys' road trip to the Hudson Valley commences after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
2: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over
1: before operating on real patients.
0: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
1: Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact.
2: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. This episode
0: is brought to you by For the Ages, a podcast from the New York Historical Society. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast featuring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. You'll learn about the great influenza from historian John Barry. Why do they call it the Spanish flu? When it didn't start in spain what did the spanish call it you'll be surprised at what people were told to do to protect themselves from the virus and in cover story katherine graham ceo mr rubenstein interviews the children of katherine graham to learn how a woman with no business experience became one of the top female business leaders what effect Truman capote's famous black and white ball had on her and they discuss her decision-making process when publishing the Pentagon Papers. In The Man Who Ran Washington, New York Times Chief White House Correspondent Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New York Times, discuss the life and legacy of James Baker, one of the most influential power brokers in American history. That's For the Ages from the New York Historical Society, available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. Listener, the sound that you're hearing right now is thousands of gallons of water cascading, gushing over the side of the spillway because we are at Croton Gorge Park here
2: on an absolutely beautiful day. It's going to be like 80 degrees today, and it's it's still April. What a day to actually come way up here to Croton Gorge Park. (laughs) Yes, so... We
0: are at the northernmost reach of the Croton Aqueduct, sitting in a parkland where people are enjoying picnics already today. We see people are sunning themselves, sunbathing is happening. And we are looking up at this massive dam itself, or the new Croton Dam. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that new part in a second. And of course, that dam also has this gorgeous, very picturesque bridge that overlooks the whole site.
2: Yes, and of course, then there's also that cascading water that you mentioned. And as beautiful as that is, it is not, Greg, technically a waterfall.
0: It looks like a waterfall. Yes, it does. It looks like a very exceptional waterfall, but it is actually a spillway, a passage for diverting surplus water down to the gorge. Okay, so the Mm -hmm. Croton River Gorge is right over on this way. So all that cascading water. It is gorge. It's it's totally gorge. (laughs) The water cascades out when the dam is filled at maximum capacity so especially after a flood it is it is quite a show over here Mm. so and part of that is man-made and part of it is actually just natural features of the land lending it this quality of of a naturally occurring waterfall
2: And all of this is considered the new Croton Dam. And we're going to get to the construction of all of this in just a second. But let's first talk about the construction of the old Croton Dam. It's the subject of today's show. Was that on this same spot? Believe it or not, the old Croton Dam is actually a couple
0: miles north of here. Okay, Mm. so into the area of the dam today. And it's 34 feet underwater. Mm. Okay, well get we'll pick up all of that later but back to our story so back to the fall of 1836 where you left us john jervis has been put in charge of the croton aqueduct project he picked up whatever work douglas had managed to do and then began mapping and surveying the land between this spot and new york that would also include sinking large test shafts into the land, you know, along where the
2: path would be to determine geological support. And, and they would need good support because on top of building a dam, mm-hmm. you know, that would collect all the water up here, what we're talking about is essentially a long tunnel that would run the course from the Croton River here down to New York City mm-hmm. where, where then the water would be collected in additional reservoirs. Yes, more or less
0: a long pipe That would be nested within a stone masonry work, which then itself would be built below ground level, above ground level, kind of like along sides of hills, like whatever the topography of the land, you know, whatever was required. Required to make it slope at 13 inches a mile. Right. So that often meant that there would be cut into the earth and it would be underground and covered up, you know turned into a mound, mm-hmm. sometimes it would be visible. You know, Essentially, this was a water dispersal system, okay? So think of an office water cooler with a very long spout, if you will, <laughs> right? <laughs> Using gravity to transport the Croton water through these tunnels and sometimes over bridges to get to New York
2: okay but let's go back to that original dam that's a couple miles up, up mm-hmm. river from us how did they even go about building a dam during this period during the 1830s because the crone river is really large and, and it stretches into so many different directions within the state of new york they chose a spot on the
0: westernmost edge of the river okay. to build a 90 foot long granite dam it would be adjoined to an earth embankment, and that would complete the wall of the dam, right? There would also be a secondary dam 300 feet down the river that would alleviate some of the water's force and create more or less an actual lake, you know, between those two dams. The water would be drained, and then that dried riverbed would be lined with a concrete core and then faced with wooden
2: piers. So really, there's a lot to a dam, isn't there? A <laughs> <Damn> lot <straight. laughs> that you just don't see when you just look at this as we are you know, sitting on the other side of the water of this dam. We're just looking up at this giant stone-faced structure. We don't see what's going on on the other side of it. So then from the dam, the water is regulated through a tunnel and a gatehouse and then makes its way out to the aqueduct or the the tunnels the conduits that make their way slope all their way down to new york city and i mean this is obvious but this thing runs 40 miles down to today's central park that required a lot of land to build this aqueduct
0: yeah and land that was mostly taken by the state using eminent domain now according to the croton commissioner reports of the period, quote. Wait,
2: you brought one of those here.
0: <laughs> Let me unfurl this uh, cr- like watermarked scroll. No, quote. Five hundred and thirty-four acres were taken from thirty-six property owners who were paid eighty-five thousand seven hundred eighty-five dollars for land needed for the reservoir. Another two hundred and ninety-two acres were purchased along the aqueduct line from owners who got a total of $165,000, an average of $571 per acre. Wow. Meaning about $160,000 per acre in today's dollars, more or less but then those who sold the land could often ask for very exorbitant sums because you know you couldn't build an aqueduct around a contested property for instance you couldn't like you couldn't do a detour like so those those landowners
2: sometimes had the upper hand and certainly not everybody was overjoyed, you know, that the city was building this aqueduct through their land. Yeah, I mean, it was a complicated story because
0: some of the landowners who had connections to state politics or who had business in New York stood to benefit from the aqueduct. However, there was a lot of hostility, as you could imagine, not just for the permanent structures that were being made, but the disruptive construction process, the huge amount of construction materials that were just all of a sudden showing up in people's backyard, Mm. essentially. The protest movement up here was actually led by a man named Theodorus Van Wick, as early as 1835, when you know the, the scheme was being hatched, uh, he would ride his horse into New York, ride it around, and post protest signs criticizing this project. So he was like on it early. In 1837, Van Wyck then petitioned the state legislature, saying that the aqueduct essentially extended the borders of New York to Croton, and quote, invaded the historic
2: manor of Cortland and the county of Westchester, unquote and to be fair the construction project itself was also very dangerous work they were basically creating an enormous dam in their backyard and and that that probably didn't strike many people as very safe and furthermore they couldn't even tap into the water along the way this water was not for them. Yeah, I mean, it's very
0: easy to sympathize with the residents of Westchester here, right? Many felt this project benefited the city of New York, mm-hmm. but it didn't benefit New York State at all. Um, you know, like, for instance, the Erie Canal did, which had just been built a couple decades before, and did have an overall benefit. For some comparison, also, down in Staten Island a few decades earlier... New York State authorized a quarantine hospital, which presented almost no benefit to the residents of Staten Island and, in fact, put them in grave danger. Mm. But there was another troublesome aspect if you were a Westchester native, and that was the thousands of men who were employed to build the aqueduct who lived in this area during this construction period and were paid less than one dollar a day. Most of these men were newly arrived Irish immigrants. These were, in fact were the years before the Great Famine would bring thousands more over from Ireland in the following decade.
2: Did you say a dollar a day? Yeah, dollar a day or around that, yes. Which doesn't really strike me as overly generous. What is that in twenty twenty two dollars? Well, you
0: know, it it did, you know, vary, but That's about $28 a day, considering this work. And you keep in mind that some of them worked even through the winter. There was less work, but you could still do some kind of tunneling and excavation. It was very dangerous. We don't need to reinforce that. Men died during the construction. These low wages and dangerous work obviously led to wage strikes, most notably in Sing Sing, down the river, in August of 1837. Quoting from the newspaper, the Westchester Spy, quote, the laborers on the New York aqueduct at Croton made a strike for higher wages a few days since they had received heretofore about 70 cents a day. The contractors objected to advance their wages and about 300 refused to work. A few, however, remained at the lower rates, which displeasing the others, a general fight ensued. The military was ordered out, and several of the Sing Sing citizens armed themselves and marched to the scene of the action. But the laborers had separated, and no further disturbance took place. Unquote. Seventy cents. I mean, it, it's remarkable, actually, that it was built at all. That they could get anyone for that amount, right? And all of this is, by the way, before the labor union movement, which would arrive later in the century.
2: And conditions were dangerous for these laborers here. Was it dangerous for others? I mean, were the locals who had been kind of hesitant uh, about having this dam built in their backyard, were they in fact in danger? They would eventually,
0: and very near to when the project was almost completed. In January of 1841, a sudden thawing after days of freezing cold created a deluge of Melting snow and ice that broke through the construction mooring and then smashed open the dam. It flooded the region and destroyed every bridge
2: and mill along the river in a 16 mile area. So, including like where we're sitting. Right now, all of, this, all of this land would have been washed out by this terrible winter flood. Yes,
0: where that man is sunbathing, the playground over there, these picnic tables, all of it was underwater. And, of course, it was this way for miles and miles. A nightmare scenario. As a result, a much larger dam had to be created and built, about 270 feet long, and one that could withstand these future climate catastrophes. And by the way, since we're talking about the monumental buildings structures here, I just want to mention really quickly that there would be two bridge aqueducts also created along here. It wasn't just tubes, but there were two significant bridge structures that would also be part of the system. And that would be the double arch bridge over the Sing Sing Hill in today's Ossining. Mm-hmm. And then down south, well, Tom, you already mentioned
2: the other, one yeah. of our dear favorites. And the high bridge, which goes over the Harlem River taking the water from the aqueduct at last into Manhattan. So then when did all of this water finally get turned on? On June 22nd, 1842,
0: it was turned on here at the old Croton Dam. It took 22
2: hours,
0: believe it or not, to reach New York.
2: 22 hours for those first drops to make their way through the entire sloping system. Yes, those very first drops. And joining them on the trip, believe it or not, was
0: a small boat full of engineers and commissioners. The boat was called the Croton Maid that, according to newspapers, quote, accompanied the water down, sometimes in their barge and sometimes on the surface of the aqueduct above. (laughs)
2: Oh, we would have so been on that barge. We would have so (laughs) been on the Croton Maid. But hold on, wait, it took 22 hours. That is some serious dedication. (laughs) Well, it probably actually took them longer because their
0: purpose was also to do any last-minute patching and repairs. It was sort of Mm. like one last run of the whole thing. When the waters did turn on in New York, there was, of course, a huge celebration in the city. This would clearly change the course of New York forever.
2: Yeah, as the water hit the... A holding reservoir that is in today's Central Park, and then down to the distribution reservoir at 42nd Street, and then made its way down to City Hall Park for great rejoicing in fact, legendary rejoicing in, in today's City Hall Park. But maybe we can peek again, we can climb up on the side of this mountain <laughs> Let's here. Scale I it. think I've we can <laughs> sort of how do we get up? We'll figure out how to get up all the way up 240 feet to the top of this new dam. Why don't we hike up, take this little path over here. We're going to hike up into this forest and uh, hopefully be able to peer over the other side of this dam into the reservoir. Mm
0: -hmm. We then decided, perhaps unwisely, to make our way up to the top of the dam via a very, very steep hill. Little did we know at the time that the aqueduct tunnel ran under our feet.
2: I am not dressed for a hike. Maybe that's not a trail. What is it? That looks pretty steep. <laughs> Let's go this way. Okay. Uh, We're almost there. almost fell backwards. Fortunately, you're attached to me by headphones. <laughs> recording. Look, it's a trail. So we are now standing at the top of the Croton, the new Croton Dam. To the left of us dry land way down 240 feet b- beneath us is where we were just recording and on the right of course is the croton river dammed in by the new croton dam but what i want to do as we continue our story greg is to actually hit the trail itself let's go walk parts of the aqueduct itself yes let's hit the trail i have the trail mix All right. Well, Greg and I are now five miles or so south of the Croton Gorge Park uh, in the lovely town of Ossining. And as you can hear in the background,
0: that is the Sing Sing Kill. What a lovely name, Sing Sing Kill. By the way, I should mention, Ossining is Sing Sing. They changed their name because of the notoriety
2: of the correctional facility, which uh, remains in town, actually. And we are crossing the double arch bridge, uh, the top of which carries the Croton Aqueduct. So, Greg, it's kind of like we're on the High Bridge um, heading (laughs) into Manhattan.
0: It's like a more rustic version of the High Bridge, I would say. It has a very M.C. Escher feel to it because it's one bridge underneath a bridge going the opposite direction. But it's all in this sort of tranquility, but also there are a lot of residential homes. There's a school over there. It's nestled in
2: in a very peaceful environment. It was constructed in 1839, or so says the sign on the side of the bridge. And we're walking up on on the northern side of the bridge is what's called a weir. It's a stone structure that was constructed in the 1880s and would be used to access the aqueduct that's right underneath us. So, that's, in fact, there's the door right there. Greg is knocking on there Anybody there? How weird. How no weird. How weird.
0: But again, it's so hard to... Imagine the dramatic impact that this new source of fresh water would have had
2: on the city that's, you know, several miles to the south. And and an immediate impact, yeah, for those who could afford to hook up to it. But, you know, not everybody could. You had to pay for it. And just two years after it opened, in 1844, there were only 6,000 customers paying for Croton Water down in New York City. It was a tiny fraction of the, the city's population of more than 300,000 people. But yes, as you said, it was a dramatic change for those who were able to afford this new utility and could afford, you know, the plumbing to hook into it. So the rest of the city, it got none of this fresh Croton water? Well, they did get some Croton water, you know, that was flowing from their public fountains and the street hydrants and um, they were protected from fires by Croton water, you know, that was flowing from the fire hydrants in town. But most homeowners at the beginning couldn't afford to hook into that system and pay for the water, and most landlords weren't interested in paying for it either. It just initially didn't seem worth it when they could still get fresh water. It cost about $10 a year or a little bit less than a dollar a month for this croton water. Which wasn't nothing.
0: Yeah, but it all just seems so very strange, right? Because there was all this water coming in. So
2: when did this change? When did people finally invest in this plumbing? Well, a couple of factors, I think, according to Gerard Koppel in his book Water for Gotham. It's because of the completion of the high bridge, which you mentioned in 1848, which actually resulted in much stronger water pressure once they could put in a much larger 90-inch in diameter pipe going across it. And at the same time, there was another cholera outbreak in New York City in 1849 that killed thousands of New Yorkers and really raised you know, awareness about the importance of fresh water and of cleaning up the city.
0: All of which happened,
2: of course, when immigration to New York was truly surging at this time. Thousands of new people into the city, packing them in in these tenements. Which resulted in a tremendous new demand for clean water. But there was still another hitch. There really wasn't anywhere for the water to go once it was used. There, there were no sewers at the beginning. Oh, of course. I didn't really think of it that way. Like the water just flowed into the streets. Needless to say, this created a very urgent need for sewers, especially in lower line areas of the city that could literally be swamped in water. water and worse so the Croton aqueduct department then built sewers uh, which allowed for the sanitary disposal of this new water so between the
0: stronger water pressure Mm -hmm. and the sewers that is what would make indoor
2: toilets a reality right indoor toilets with running water became much more common in the 1850s and really soon the croton system was flush with new customers (laughs) Yeah, you you couldn't resist. You've been on that Gilded Age show for so long, you're literally backed up with puns. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> well, we're going to plunge right into some more, Greg. But this is an important point, actually. Indoor toilets were an important part in the evolution of this whole system and really actually put a huge new strain on the system. The, the Croton department really had wildly underestimated the average daily water consumption of New Yorkers. <laughs> Chorus of fleshes. (laughs) (laughs) They thought that New Yorkers would use about 20 gallons per day per person. But after these sewers were built, the real number was more like 90 gallons per day per person. Wow. That
0: really does seem like a lot of water back then. So what I'm hearing here is the system has become
2: really popular Mm -hmm. and people are using way too much water. Somehow it's very easy to imagine this, (laughs) right? And by the 1880s, even though they had added by this time additional reservoirs, this old, original Croton aqueduct could not handle the demand in the city. Of course, the city's growing also very quickly at this point. And even worse, this system and this aqueduct was under such pressure, like literally extreme water pressure, that it could have collapsed. And if one piece of this tunnel, of this aqueduct conduit, had been broken. If an arch had collapsed under the pressure, for example, the whole thing could have come crashing down. And suddenly just cutting off water to New York in the 1880s, okay, Mm -hmm.
0: gilded age here, would have been a disaster. So this urgent need brings us to the new and improved Croton Aqueduct, one that was larger and
2: with greater capacity. Exactly, it was three times larger. And it went into service in 1890 with a 12-foot-in-diameter pressurized tunnel. Okay, pressurized, meaning that they didn't need to gently slope the whole thing down to Manhattan anymore. They could drill tunnels way underground, which they did a few miles east of the old, original Croton Aqueduct. They wouldn't even need to cross the Harlem River over that old high bridge no the tunnel was actually sunk 300 feet beneath the harlem river and from there from upper manhattan then it flowed through pipes down through manhattan to central park where it emptied into the enormous new central park reservoir This new system would be able to handle 400 million gallons of water a day.
0: So they were getting so much more water now, but it was still coming from the same source, from the Croton River. Mm -hmm. So how do you get more water into the system from the said river
2: by building a taller dam in fact the dam that we were just standing next to and climbed to the top (laughs) of they built that 240 foot tall dam which was finished in 1905 and was the largest dam in the world when it was completed
0: and again as I mentioned earlier, the old Croton Dam, the original was, right, one, which was of course so much smaller, is actually still there, you know, in the system it is now completely submerged underwater.
2: Actually, it when there are severe droughts, the old dam does peek its head out. But
0: even with this new dam and the system that was able to pump 400 million gallons a day into the city, Even this would not be enough, because
2: the population was even growing more wildly than before. Especially with the consolidation in 1898. So, by 1917, another aqueduct, the Catskill Aqueduct, brought fresh water to New York from the Catskill Mountains— It can actually bring more than 500 million gallons a day. And then in the 1960s, another system, the Delaware Aqueduct, went into service, bringing up to 800 million gallons a day. I mean, so with that incredible volume, was there even still a need for the Croton Aqueduct, like, at all? Amazingly, yes. The old Croton Aqueduct system would continue serving New York City until 1955, Although, since the 1990s, part of the northern section of the aqueduct continues to provide water to Ossiny.
0: Wait, so we are surrounded by town folk who cook,
2: clean, and drink the water of the Croton Aqueduct. Amazingly, yes, they're still getting it from the old Croton Aqueduct. And the new Croton Aqueduct still supplies about 10% of New York City's water.
0: And as we're seeing here with the double arch bridge over the Sing Sing Kill, the old aqueduct system—it's still here. You know, mm-hmm. it might not be sending New York water, but like the tunnels and the conduits are here,
2: and sometimes they're visible. Yeah, we can see it right in front of us, and you can still walk 26 miles of the old aqueduct today because it's become a trail. In fact, the aqueduct was. Always kind of a trail, you know, but access was blocked to it uh, for security purposes and to make it easier for the personnel to access and repair if necessary. But in 1968, after it had gone out of service, New York State purchased all of the aqueduct land and the structures that are in Westchester County, all 26 miles of it down to the Yonkers New York City line, and turned it into the old Croton Aqueduct State Historic Park. It's a perfect trail for hiking and biking or just kind of moseying about. Of
0: all the little bits and pieces of the old aqueduct that are still around, perhaps the loveliest, believe it or not,
2: is actually a home called the Keeper's House. Yes, there were homes built for the men who maintained and repaired the aqueduct along its route. The only one of these that's still standing today along the original route was built in 1857 in Dobbs Ferry and it was built for a man named James Bremner who was the superintendent of the aqueduct at the time and that is our
0: next destination on our trail of the old Croton Aqueduct to speak with Tom Tarnowski from the Friends of the old Croton Aqueduct
1: Hello Tom, how are you? I'm good on a nice day.
0: (laughs) It's beautiful. We're looking out over the Hudson. I mean, this is just perfectly perched on this lovely hill. And Mm -hmm. we are, in fact, in front of the old Croton Aqueduct.
2: It's running through here, correct? Correct. Uh, We're standing in front of the Keeper's House, which is the last remaining Keeper's House sitting in its original position along the
1: trail. Correct. Mm -hmm. They built uh, five or six of them all in the same year. To replace ramshackle cottages that the local aqueduct superintendents lived in originally mm-hmm. and so they upgraded their housing and you can see that this one has lasted since 1857. The, of the five or six keepers houses that were built each one had a keeper or a superintendent who was responsible for a four to six mile maybe seven mile stretch of the aqueduct mm-hmm. they would inspect maintain mow the grass Push stones back in place, chase the cows off, things like that. Wow, they really
2: got their steps in every day. <laughs>
1: they, they did. They did.
2: And so where, where's the aqueduct?
1: Because we don't see it. It runs under Walnut Street right here, past the other side, the far side of the keeper's house there, going south, Mm -hmm. crosses Route 9 on the other side of it. Is there any way to know, like, specifically where it is?
2: I mean, I see that there's kind of a hill here. Is it part of that? Was an embankment made around it?
1: The embankment is somewhat natural, and the reason it's on this elevation and following this ridgeline down the Hudson is that it had to be maintained at the proper elevation for the water to move downhill by gravity alone, which is how the whole system works, the same physical principles that the ancient Romans used to build their aqueducts.
0: And I and I want to ask you more about the specific engineering me- and mechanics
2: of how the aqueduct worked. But let's actually let's go inside. We headed inside the historic keeper's house to continue the conversation. It's a lovely two-story, newly renovated building constructed in the Italianate style.
0: Wow. So early in our show we talked about the construction of the old Croton Dam, but really talked sort of generally spoke about the construction but not the mechanics. Could you really walk us through like how water got from the dam to New York City or the particular engineering tricks and feats that the aqueduct used to help get water to New York?
1: Generally there's a one word answer to the question and it's Gravity. (laughs) Uh The water was delivered from a higher elevation in northern Westchester County to a lower elevation in New York City by gravity alone. All of the updates and expansions of the New York City water system work exactly the same way. Water that comes from the far western reaches of the Catskill Mountains through newer aqueducts built in the 20th century reaches New York City by gravity as well. If it's not in an unpressurized tunnel, but a pressurized tunnel, they sometimes go through siphons, which means the water has to go downhill and back up again under pressure. But again, the sections that are not pressurized all deliver water 130 to 150 miles away from, say, the southernmost point of Staten Island by gravity alone. And in terms of getting uh, water from the old Croton
2: Dam down to Manhattan, that first system that opened in the 1840s, the aqueduct was
1: basically a tunnel that was slanted down at, uh, there was a 13-inch drop per mile? That's correct. Uh, the surveying had to be very exact because they only had a certain number of uh, feet in elevation to play with. Mm-hmm. It was about 140 feet in elevation behind the, new, the old dam in 1842, mm-hmm. and the elevation in New York that they wanted to raise water up to could be as much as 100 feet above the street. And that the water in the pipes through which it was distributed in New York could push water up about five stories, so 50 to 70 feet. And that was as high as any residential building was in New York at the time. So every building could get water to the top floor, you know, its fifth or sometimes sixth floor. Right,
2: that's something that we hadn't even really thought about. We were talking about getting water to the the reservoir in today's Central Park and then down to the Murray Hill Distribution Reservoir, but then it had to get actually down to the city itself and to the residents and then up into their apartments.
1: Yeah, the 42nd Street Above Ground Reservoir, Distributing Reservoir on 42nd and 5th Avenue, when it was built, was about a mile or two north of the built-up sections of the city. So it was kind of out in the suburbs of New York City at 42nd and 5th Avenue. <laughs> and then there was a, um, the original reservoir called the uh, Receiving Reservoir, mm-hmm. which today we know as the Great Lawn in Central Park. Mm-hmm. It was emptied in the 20s, filled in in the 1930s. Um, one of Robert Moses' first big projects as a, as a New York City Parks administrator uh, to fill it in and make it the Great Lawn that we know today. It never really occurred to me until now how remarkable this
0: incredibly steady and precise piece of engineering that is running this entire length. Meanwhile, you have all these different topographical challenges that are going on all around it. I mean, how did they account for all the various differences in landscape?
1: Uh, They basically had to pay attention to the surveying and the leveling of the aqueduct to maintain that 13 and a quarter or 13 and a half inches a mile Mm -hmm. decline, uh, which was just enough to keep the water moving at two to four miles an hour. In areas where there was a hill in front of them, they might tunnel through it. Mm -hmm. In areas where there was fairly level land, they could dig a trench and build the aqueduct in that. And areas where there was a valley, they had to build up a wall and then build the aqueduct on top of the wall to cross the valley, mm-hmm. and then enclose it all in uh, rubble uh, and earth, and and then sod the top of it so it wouldn't erode away. And we were actually just
2: in Austin walking across the Devil Arch Bridge, and so we see how they would build bridge structures. And obviously, they did the same thing across the Harlem River with a high bridge with the opening of the high bridge and eventually a larger tunnel that would that would bring more water across the bridge, we were saying before that uh, this,
1: among other things, helped with the popularity of indoor plumbing and toilets. It actually gave rise to indoor plumbing and toilets uh, and led to incredible uh, increases in the amount of water used in the city. Uh, when they first opened the aqueduct in 1842, they probably didn't, didn't deliver more than 20 million gallons a day. And that increased rapidly as houses, you know, south of 23rd or 14th Street uh, hooked up to the water mains that they had started to install. And the use of water went very rapidly from, you know, 10 or 20 million gallons a day to 70 million gallons a day, which was the designed maximum of water to be delivered through the old aqueduct. And the Croton Aqueduct Department
2: was also responsible then for digging sewers in order to help with the the whole
1: flow cycle of this water? The Croton Water Department was the entity that handled the delivery of water at first, and they also uh, were responsible for building sewers at the same time. So the water had... To come into the city in great quantities and also had to leave the city in great quantities after being used and so the construction of sewers at the same time that they were laying water mains was a necessity
0: but i want to speak a little bit about the communities who were living around this croton dam architecture you know austin sing sing Dobbs ferry terrytown all of these places were living with this essentially in their backyard could they use this water? And how what was the kind of overall community reaction throughout the 19th
1: century to this ever growing system? There was a lot of resentment, as there is even today up in the Catskill Mountains, to the large reservoirs that are up there, which flooded valleys and destroyed towns. It wasn't as much of a problem in Westchester in the mid 19th century because, you know, there were more cows and horses and sheep than there were people. But the, the fact that New York City owned the water uh, and it was used exclusively at first for about 50 years for New York City mm-hmm. led to some resentment. It's interesting that today, Austin gets water from the old system. Yes, it does, and starting in the early 1900s, uh, New York City made agreements, I think after probably more court cases, mm-hmm. uh, to supply uh, Westchester towns that were interested with hookups to the Croton water system. You mentioned before that, you know, with this increase in use of
2: water, with the city's population boom, you know, consolidation in 1898 meant a lot more New York City residents had to get water. Absolutely. This, of course, then created a need for a new system. And we we were just literally standing on the other side of that dam and, and hiked up to the top and looked in at the water supply and the reservoir on the other side. but that new aqueduct is not something that we can really walk along today.
1: No, the new aqueduct was built in the 1880s and completed in about 1890 with more modern technology. They had steam-powered drills, they had dynamite, and so instead of surface topography that the old aqueduct dealt with, they could dig down 100 feet or more underground, avoid all the twists and turns on the surface, Mm -hmm. and build the aqueduct in straight lines. So the aqueduct they built in the 1880s, was only 31 miles long compared to the original aqueduct, which was 41 miles uh, because they could build the new one in straight lines and it took 10 miles less of digging and and tunneling than the original one. And still
2: today, in 2022, about 10% of New York City's drinking water comes from the new aqueduct?
1: The new Croton Aqueduct, uh, built in 1890, was recently renovated over the past five years, shut down for the first time since 1890. Uh, remortared, inspected where it had to be, they found it to be in remarkably good condition you know, after 130 years of use. Uh, so the, the renovation on it went fairly quickly, and then it went back into use after the renovation, and it is delivering 10% of New York City's water even today, which is also filtered now, by the way, <laughs> through a big filtration plant in Van Cortland Park. Like a big Brita filter, a gigantic filter. I'm just
0: seeing all the very water pointing. Very
1: big, <laughs> very big Brita filter. Um,
0: Moving on to just the the 20th century, what were the circumstances that essentially led for the closure of the Croton Aqueduct in the 1950s?
1: The old aqueduct, because other aqueducts had been built, the new Croton, the Catskill Aqueduct, and the Delaware Aqueduct, they delivered so much water to the city, it wasn't worth keeping the old one open. It was such a small conduit compared to the volume of water being delivered to the city. And then when was the decision
2: made to convert the old aqueduct into the old Croton Aqueduct Trail?
1: I think New York City probably did not want to invest a lot in maintaining it, either on the surface or the tunnel itself, after it had been retired. And so by the early 1970s, it was turned over to New York State Parks to become one of the early linear trails. Uh, Now we know them as rail trails, but this probably was one of the early examples of, of a linear piece of property being used as a, as a park. Um, although it wasn't a rail trail, the aqueduct basically offered the same kind of off-road experience for bicyclists and hikers probably was a very early example of an off-road trail.
0: And I'm sure you've walked
1: the whole length of the
0: trail, at least most of it, right? Like, what are the the kind of distinguishing and unique features of the Croton Aqueduct Trail? As someone is, you know, walking through here or just experiencing the nature, what sort of ruins, what aspects of the aqueduct
1: can they still see on their trip? Um, A lot of the aqueduct is built into the hillside or on top of a ridge at the proper elevation, you know, to provide that gravity for the water to go downhill. And a lot of that is still visible here in Dobbs Ferry. In Irvington, goes through the Lyndhurst property mm-hmm. and it goes through people's backyards in Terrytown. Mm-hmm. You can walk right through someone's backyard <laughs> in Terrytown and you know, they're not allowed to fence it off because it's state property for that sixty six oh, yeah. feet of Interesting. width. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and and actually if you look on Google Maps, you can just follow the dotted
1: line. They've got the they've got the old trail on the on the map. Yep. And you'll know you're on the right trail when a couple of hundred yards ahead you see a ventilator tower Mm. made out of stone like a chimney built up in the middle of a trail in the middle of nowhere it was actually a part of the aqueduct trail that allowed water uh, air to enter the aqueduct Uh, and and many are still standing many many are still standing some are demolished but in the northern part of the trail all the way down to yonkers there are still some of the ventilator towers standing so, if you were one of our listeners right now who lived in New York City and you
2: wanted to get out and experience the Croton Aqueduct, the old Croton Aqueduct Trail, where would
1: you even start? Where Where do you recommend to people? Recommendations? Yes. Do you go to the dam or do you start here? Where do you go? Being a, a resident of northern Westchester, I live up near the northern end of the aqueduct, near the new Croton Dam. Mm-hmm. And that is the most northerly accessible point of the aqueduct available now. I like it up there because it's a more natural environment. You can get off of the built up streets and beyond that aqueduct and think you're 150 years in the past in some cases.
0: Now, it would be irresponsible for us, not to mention that we're actually, inside the Keeper's House, this is really kind of a miniature museum to the whole Croton Aqueduct system, and people can and visit here and, and learn the history from here.
1: Yeah, on Saturdays and Sundays between 1 and 4 o'clock, we have a couple of docents, all our volunteer members of Friends of the Old Croton Aqueduct, and they'll be here on Saturdays and Sundays to greet any visitors who come in and talk about the history of the aqueduct. We do regularly scheduled uh, walks and tours. Um, Almost every weekend, in nice weather, we'll have one or maybe even two tour events or walk events uh, scheduled somewhere along the trail, anywhere from the Croton Dam uh, all the way down to Highbridge in Manhattan. And listeners can
2: find out more details about upcoming events at your website, aqueduct.org.
1: Our major mission for Friends of the Old Aqueduct is to protect and preserve the aqueduct in perpetuity and so we we do things like fund repairs of collapsed stone walls and we'll work with property owners if they have a tree fall in their yard from the from the trail the park superintendent will bring his crew and remove the tree from someone's backyard Uh, a lot of it is mowing in the summer yeah you're still the gatekeepers (laughs) The, the the keeper is still you know here years later even though it's not a new york city water (laughs) <laughs> um, facility, there's still a the keeper uh, on the job. Tom, you're like a
0: big, cool glass of cold water from the Croton Aqueduct. <laughs> thank you so much for giving us this like r- great insight into this historic structure.
2: Okay.
1: Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, we love doing this. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you, well, thank you for coming.
2: We would like to send a huge thank you to Tom Tarnowski and the entire group at the Friends of the Old Croton Aqueduct. We encourage you to check out their website, aqueduct.org, for more information about the history of the aqueduct, great pictures, and a list of upcoming events and programs. In addition, you should
0: also visit the New York State's website for the old Croton Aqueduct State Historic Park, because it has all sorts of information to help you plan your adventure on the trail.
2: Head over to BoweryBoysHistory.com to find great images, not only from the history of the Croton Aqueduct, but from our little road trip today. We took pictures of everything along the trail. And then this past weekend, I actually, like, meandered the trail
0: by myself on a contemplative stroll along the Hudson River. So we'll have
2: those pictures on the website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And a big thanks to everyone who supports the Bowery Boys on Patreon. Uh, you know, a few months ago, we asked our patrons where we should go on our next road trip miniseries. And a few weeks ago, we actually asked for specific places and the old Croton Aqueduct was among the top two finishers. So it really is truly our patrons who chose this show and the next two shows. Uh, they get the scoop on future Bowery Boys episodes before anybody else. So join the fun, become an insider at patreon.com slash Boys. And spring
0: is in full bloom, or at least it's starting to right now in New York City. So it's a great time to check out Bowery Boys Walks. There are many different kinds of walks that you can take that are scheduled all through the city. Many different kinds of history with a Bowery Boys Walks tour guide.
2: We've got tours that walk you through 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century New York City. There's even a a new tour that's going live. In the coming days, a history of Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs. I mean, is that a Bowery Boys walk or what? Check out all of the great tours that are now on offer at BoweryBoysWalks.com, and we'll see you in the streets. So thank you very much
0: for joining us on the first leg of our <laughs> Barry Boys road trip to the Hudson Valley. Where will we be going next? Tune in and find out next episode.
2: I think I'm going to rest that leg
0: for a little while. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.